Super Talk Mississippi media production. Taylor Swift is coming to New Orleans, and Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and Super Talk are giving away a free pair of tickets. For your chance to win, go register now at Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and get your name in for the final drawing from Margaritaville and Super Talk 103.1. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday, y'all. What the heck is that big eye up in the sky? Where's that thing been? Rolled over this morning, and I'm like, what is this brightness coming through the window? <laughs> yes, indeed. The rain out of here, at least for a while, but I think there's more cold weather, certainly in the uh, upper Midwest, moving through, right? Big old Arctic blast coming through. But here in Mississippi, the sun is out. It'll have to be out a while to dry all that water that we have received the last few days. No doubt about that. I wanted to thank President Biden today. Special thanks to him. It's because of him that my holdings in Exxon have enjoyed quite the positive run. You see, when you take action and implement policy that reduces supply of something we all got to have, those people who produce it, e.g. Exxon, they do pretty well. So those of us that felt like that would be the case, that made some investment decisions on that basis. We're feeling pretty spunky today. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. It's just so crazy, isn't it? They're, they're just going nuts because they recorded a $55 billion profit. Greatest, largest in their history. Last, time, last record profit stood for a while. 2008. 2008. Here 15 years later. Joe broke the record for them, and they just don't understand that that is completely a result of their dumb policies. So Exxon says, we're doing so well, we're going to buy some of our stock back to pump the stock up more. So all the people that Joe and the Democrats just absolutely loathe, (laughs) he just made them richer. You can't make it up. Unbelievable. And here's the thing. Those of us who did well off of this are still calling for him to tear down some of these, repeal these goofy regulations, knowing that that would cause supply to increase and thus profits to be reduced because it's the right thing to do. We also understand, don't we, that in doing so, 
the cost of everything else we buy that relies on some component of fossil fuels, whether it's in the direct production of the good, the product itself, or certainly the transportation of it, the powering of the facilities that are involved in making or administering, operating the entity that produces such goods. We get that. That's good for the economy overall. Good for consumers. Capitalists understand this very simple concept, but we got an anti-capitalist, I believe, in the White House and certainly uh, in the Congress to a great extent. You probably saw, folks, if you haven't, there was a vote yesterday. I, I thought it was a pretty good ploy on the part of Republicans to, quote, condemn, it's on a bill, to, quote, condemn resolution, I guess, the horrors of socialism. 109 Democrats did vote for it. 86 voted against it. Meaning, another 14 voting present. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Didn't want to weigh in on whether or not socialism brings with it horrors. Unbelievable. Split the House Democrats. I think it's very telling. There's a soft spot among the Democrats for the political system of socialism. Without paying any attention to the wrath of the leftist policy of socialism. Poverty, death, shortages of the staples of life. It's incredible. So now you know it's the cats out of the back. Not that we didn't already know that, but I guess it's more official now. That essentially we put a bill or a resolution on the floor to condemn the horrors of socialism and 86 won't won't go along with it. They vote against it. Gosh, but it did pass 328 to 86. I'm pleased to know that all Republicans did vote to condemn the horrors of socialism for this resolution. (laughs) 86 Democrats voted against it. And they justified it by saying, well, I oppose socialism, but calling up a measure is just just the Republicans going after Social Security. I kid you not. And Medicare and other. That's almost as dumb as what Biden said this morning. What's that? I've got some audio. Okay. Here, just give it a listen. Can you take any blame for inflation, Mr. President? Are taking blame for inflation? No. <laughs> of course not. Why not? Because it was already there when I got here, man. Remember what the economy was like when I got here? No, man. You're wrong, man. Inflation was 1.4%, man, when you got there. Come on, man. (laughs) You're talking malarkey, Biden. (laughs) Do we need to use the terms he understands? Not a joke. He loves that. So today we got a jobs report. Now, the jobs report shocked. It came in quite positive. Lowest unemployment rate, folks, since 1969. 
at 3.4%. Now, I believe this is the, the dynamic of the pandemic. Still got 11 million jobs available, 1.7 for every prospective worker looking for work. I still think people are on the sidelines. They're not included in these unemployment statistics. They're not looking for work. Therefore, they're not included. Living off the government. So the, that report comes out, and it's positive. And they also revised the last couple of months' reports upward, meaning more jobs created in November and December. So we got, and that always is the case. You know, you, you, they try to get this data out this measurement out, often in advance of really having final data, and that's, that's understandable, and so they revise it. But it did get revised upward. So we got significant job growth, I believe 517,000, if I'm not mistaken, jobs added, which is, is huge. Uh, yeah, jobs, uh, so hiring accelerated. Now you're seeing a lot of the big tech guys laying people off. Those get, those get the media's attention. What you're not seeing is small, mid-sized businesses in this country still trying to get workers to come back after we sent them all home. And none of the stories about big tech seem to ever want to talk about the fact that they've hired twice as many, three times as many people as they let off in the last year. That's right. That's exactly right. And because they were anticipating this continuation of steep demand caused by the helicopter money that we sprayed all over the country during the pandemic. So this is another situation. How many more times do we have to point out Joe's just untruths? I try to stay away from the word lie and liar. That's something that I think we get more out of the Democrats. It certainly applies here. But on, on this economic stuff, it's rather continuous. So here's what's going to happen today. He's going to come on the national media scene, conduct a briefing, reading from a teleprompter, and he's absolutely going to take victory laps over this jobs report. We're growing the economy from the bottom up. He's going to just, it's the same old tired rhetoric that we're going to hear today. And he's going to, of course, pat himself on the back, just like he did in that sound Rhino play. Come on, man. Think about where we were and not, not acknowledging, yeah, the problem was a lot of people were at home because you told them to go home. You and your goofy scientists said, go home, don't work, stay away. What, what was the, the, little, the little quip, stay at home or something like that? Remember that? I don't remember what the, it's been a while. A about of two weeks to flatten the curve. Well, that one, but wasn't there something about stay safe, stay at home? No, it was something about home. I, I don't know. I'll that sounds to. like one of those frames everybody put on their Facebook. Picture. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I didn't partake, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, I was essential. He just hasn't considered that the whole story. We're only getting part of the story. I hate that. When we come back, we've got Congressman Michael Guest. He'll give us an update from yesterday. Stay with us. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
are back in the Element Wealth Studios. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Joining us now, Congressman Michael Guest. He represents Mississippi's 3rd District, of course. Morning, Congressman. Good to see you. Quite the day yesterday in the U.S. House. Congratulations for your appointment to chair the Ethics Committee in the House. Well, That's thank awesome. you. Yeah. Good, good to see you again today. Yeah, so, got yeah. a chance to have uh, coffee with you this morning. Yeah. Uh, good to be on. Uh, good to be back home. Got home last night. Uh, be home for a short weekend. Turn back around Monday. Uh, but uh, we did have a, a, a day yesterday. Um, uh, uh, Representative Alan Omar, uh, there was a resolution brought onto the House floor. Uh, we had the opportunity to uh, lead that resolution both through the Rules Committee uh, earlier this week and on the House floor yesterday, uh, seeking to remove uh, Representative Omar from her, her position uh, on the Committee on Foreign Affairs. Yeah. And there was uh, the the fireworks from the squad were predictable. Uh, in fact, it's on our screen right now. There's the, the tape of Rashida Tlaib. Uh, the crocodile tears were flowing in the U.S. House yesterday. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was amazing seeing what we saw on the, the Democrat side uh, about the, the process uh, and, and how this was fundamentally wrong. Uh, but but what Republicans did is Republicans followed the, the 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 precedent set forth last Congress by Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats. Uh, right. The Democrats on not one but two occasions uh, repo- removed Republicans from their committee assignments. Uh, first Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and then Paul Gosar, uh, and uh, they did so with the same. Uh, using the same mechanism that Republicans use this week, uh, took the matter directly to the House floor. Uh, Prior to going to the floor, we had a Rules Committee debate, uh, which uh, sets forth the the, the way in which this matter would go forward. Uh, And during the Rules Committee debate, uh, there was uh, a lot of discussion back and forth about due process and the procedure, and Hmm. was this procedure fair? Uh, and I think uh, every, everyone agreed that this is the procedure that the Democrats set forward. This is the procedure that we should follow. Uh, and then we saw a lot of emotion uh, on the House floor uh, yesterday uh, as Democrats were arguing and as they were pleading that she should be able to remain on foreign affairs. How does that, how does that work, Congressman? Because we, we just, uh, of course, reelected and reseated. We have a brand new Congress. She was on that committee in the prior Congress. So are you automatically on those committees when the new Congress starts? How does that work? No. uh, Every Congress, uh, each party sets forth their slate of committee members. Uh, That that slate is first approved by the caucus, Uh, each caucus. So Republicans approve our slate, Democrats approve theirs. Uh, And then it has to go. uh, uh, And then unless there is a challenge, uh, those members are automatically seated on those committees. And so as soon uh, as it was announced... uh, that Miss Omar would be seated on foreign affairs. Uh, Max Miller from the state of Ohio okay. filed Resolution 76, uh, and that resolution was very narrowly tailored, Gerard. I, w- I want to make sure your listeners yeah, understand. It's two, two pages. It's, it's two pages. Uh, it says for six specific examples of anti-Semitic statements uh, that uh, Representative uh, Omar made uh, during her term as a member of Congress. Uh, and, and it also there listed that the, the the remedy was not that she be kicked off every committee. And that's what happened to Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's what happened every to committee Paul Goldsor. Yeah. They lost all their committee assignments. It was very narrowly tailored and said she 
should not sit on the Committee on Foreign Affairs. Sure. Uh, that this is a very prestigious committee, uh, that this uh, c- committee uh, deals with things of, of, of national security. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, that both our uh, adversaries and our allies have to be dependent upon uh, what those committee members are, are saying as we're talking about internationally sensitive incidents. And so uh, Republicans thought that that was uh, a fair remedy for the statements that, that, that she had made. And so she will continue being Ms. Omar to serve on committees, just not the Committee on Foreign Affairs. Sure. Which is uh, a, a step up considerably from what the Pelosi-led uh, Congress did uh, to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's right. You know, and, and so you know, when people say, "Well, this is just political tit for tat," you know that uh, you know that we're we're just doing this because this is what Democrats uh, did previously. You know, if if Republicans had wanted to, Republicans could have voted to kick her off all of her committees uh, in their entirety. And, and so I think this is a very different resolution than the resolution brought forth uh, last Congress against Marjorie Taylor Greene against Paul Gosar. You know, and, and the interesting thing and the thing one of the things that we pointed out, you know. Is the the resolution to kick Marjorie Taylor Greene off of her committees much more, uh, uh, much smaller? I'm holding it here in my hand, and it just says that she should be removed from her committee assignments in light of conduct she has exhibited. Didn't talk about that conduct, didn't talk about what those statements were, just saying because of conduct, and this was conduct prior to her becoming yeah, a member of Congress, right. Democrats used that to kick her off of her committee assignments. And so I think what Republicans did is night and day from what we saw Democrats do as Democrats sought to weaponize committee assignments last Congress. Well, it really is sort of gaslighting on steroids, and here, here's what I mean, projection at a minimum by that is that when uh, Elon Omar stood in, I think her first statement was, it's no surprise, you know, when I, while I have been kicked off here, while I've been removed, and, and basically immediately jumped to the race card scapegoat cause, and, and basically saying, you just don't like me because of the way I look and who I am and so forth. In fact, that's the precise reason why they did that to Marjorie Taylor Greene. There really wasn't any substance there. It was, we just don't like you more than anything else. That's, that's right. And, and, and she really offered, you know, no apology for the statements that yeah. she had made. You know, and, and one of the things that's contained in this resolution that, that I thought was very telling uh, is there is a statement in the resolution the, that was made at that time by Democratic Chairman Elliot Engel. Uh, okay. He was the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, at the time many of these statements were made. And there was a period of 17 days in which she made, being Alan Omar, she made three uh, anti-Semitic statements. And so after the third statement in that two-and-a-half-week period, this is what Chairman Engel said. And again, remember, he is a Democrat chairman, so this is not a Republican making this statement. This is a Democrat. Okay. Uh, and he said it's unacceptable and deeply offensive to call into question the loyalty of fellow American citizens because of their political views including support for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Hmm. We all take the same oath. Worse, Representative Omar's comments that um, leveled uh, that charge by invoking a vile anti-Semitic slur. And then he goes on to say, and this is what I think is the most important, that her comments have no place in the Foreign Affairs Committee or the House of Representatives. Wow. And so when the chairman of that committee says that her comments are wrong and that they that, that they have no place in the Committee on Foreign Affairs, 
Uh, my argument is the person who made those statements <laughs> should not serve in that committee. He, he made the case. That's star right. he, star yeah, witness yeah, right there. Right. Yeah, you know, the star witness was the Democrat chairman of the committee for which he served. In, incredible. I, uh, I watched the video of uh, you presiding over the proceedings and introducing uh, Representative Nicole Malliotakis from New York, from New York yes. a Republican. And what she offered, I thought, was some some uh, great, as we say in the business world, some great color. Yeah, because she serves on foreign affairs. Yeah, so with, she she uh, actually made some uh, revelations about things she had witnessed in those committee meetings from Representative Omar that just kind of added to what had already been stated and what was included in the resolution. Yeah, and, and, and the six statements contained in the resolution are really just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, every statement that she made that is uh, anti-Semitic in nature, or really anti-American, because uh, she, you know, equating America and Israel with the Taliban, uh, with Hamas, uh, saying that on 9-11 that some people did something. I mean, that should be offensive to all Americans. Uh, and if and if she holds those views, which clearly she does because she's made those statements, you know, again, I think it is a, a very easy argument to make that she has and should not serve on foreign affairs. She has no place serving on that committee with those views. And that's all the resolution says. That's exactly you, you, right. So in, in legal speak, you, it's a conflict of interest if you think about it. Most definitely, no, most definitely, and, you know, and so, and, and particularly, you know, if we view, and many of us do, that Israel is one of our closest allies, particularly sure. in the Middle East. So, as she's making these anti-Semitic statements, you know, th- that that harms that relationship that we have with one of our closest allies. And yeah. so, if she wants to serve on education and labor, if they want to put her on science, space, and technology, you no know, energy and commerce, she, let, let her serve, but not on this particular committee. It's just unbelievable. Well, I thought Nicole did an excellent job, and again, she revealed some things I'm not sure the body knew until she stood up. And and honestly, and it was recorded, of course, and so the whole world found out about it. We've got Congressman Michael Guest in the Element Well Studios. We got to talk about the debt ceiling and some of that a little bit. When yes, we sir. come back, stay with us. Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. Studios. Our guest is Congressman Michael Guest. He serves as the chair of the House Ethics Committee. 
And, uh, of course, yesterday, the fireworks with the resolution adopted to remove uh, Representative Elon Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. And, and just one more time, make the point, she is not uh, prohibited through this resolution from serving on other committees, just not specifically this one. That's right. She can serve on any other committee in Congress. And so it's not as if she can't be an effective member of Congress. we got a lot more needs than just foreign affairs. That's why we have multiple committees. That's right. You know, she can represent her district uh, in any other number of, of committee assignments, uh, and I know, that, I know that she will get other committee assignments, and so she's not barred from uh, being able to serve on committees. Again, very narrowly focused resolution, uh, I think, uh, was, uh, was based upon her conduct. I think this was uh, the right mechanism to go forward, uh, and, and I think the vote showed that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, again, uh, Republicans followed the blueprint, followed the roadmap, if you will, that Nancy Pelosi established last Congress uh, and actually provided some additional protection there in the resolution, Gerard, allowing an appeal, appeals process. And okay. so uh, if Ms. Omar feels like that she was wrongly removed from her committee, she can file an appeal with the Ethics Committee, uh, and then we can review uh, the findings of the entire body. And yeah. so she does have the, that right to appeal something that neither Marjorie Taylor Greene nor Paul Gosar had uh, when they were removed from their committee assignments last Congress. I thought it was fitting that Representative uh, Maliotakis was presiding to deliver the results of the vote. And I could hear the boos in the background <laughs> when she was. Re- Is that what was going on? I mean, I could hear some boos in yeah, the background. There, well, as, as Democrats would get get up and speak against the resolution, you would see cheering. Uh, oh you, 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 you would see fist pumping. Uh, uh, as Republicans would get up and speak, uh, mm. there was booing. So uh, the, the, there was an unusual large <laughs> number of members uh, on the House floor yesterday afternoon. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, generally as most of these resolutions or most of these bills are, are being debated, you, know, you probably have a quarter of the members uh, yeah. or less who are on the floor, because there's committee assignments, other meetings, uh, but uh, the, there was quite a few members, particularly on the Democrat side, showing their support uh, for Ms. Omar, but at the end of the day, uh, the resolution uh, passed, right. uh, and she will no longer be a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Hmm. Speaking of resolutions, what about this resolution that condemns the horror of socialism, where 86 Democrats would not uh, vote to support that notion. You know, if there was ever anything that we should be able to pass with unanimous consent off the House floor, condemning socialism uh, should be something that is a fairly easy lift. You know, one of my favorite quotes about socialism was attributed to former uh, President Ronald Reagan, where he said, you know, socialism only works in two places, heaven where they don't need it and hell where they already have it. Uh, And so I think that is a great quote as it relates uh, to socialism. But we've seen socialist governments uh, across this. Uh, across the globe and, and what has happened. Venezuela is a great example. They were one of the most prosperous countries in Central South America uh, at one time. They adopted socialism uh, and we've seen this really turned into a, somewhat of a dictatorship there. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we all should be very aware and on guard uh, of socialism. Uh, socialism is one of these things that, that uh, in theory looks good. We're going to treat everybody equal. We're going to make sure that everyone is taken care of. 
but we see that it just doesn't work. Uh, that that capitalism is the true uh, driver uh, of of innovation, uh, the true driver of uh, increasing standards, uh, really uh, across the globe. And, and we need to continue to be a world leader in democracy. Continue to be a world leader in promoting capitalism. And we need to make sure that we're taking a firm stand against socialism. And, and socialism is just one step away removed from communism. Uh, and, and we've seen the horrors of both socialism and communist uh, governments uh, across this globe. Uh, and, and we cannot let our guard down. We hear so much outcry, uh, Congressman, from the Democrats, from the left, about the need to teach history and to continue to dig up uh, the stains of this country's past. And no, nobody uh, discounts that. No, no, nobody uh, dismisses that we, we have had our growing pains, had to deal with that, grapple with that. We're way better off now for, for, for having managed through that. Well, what about the history of what made the country great, the positive side, which is the, our capitalistic system? Shouldn't we be teaching that as well? Uh, no doubt, you know, and, and, and we need to be teaching uh, young students that, that America is and and has been the greatest nation on the face of the earth. You look at everything that we have done to promote freedom, to promote democracy uh, across the globe. Uh, we're not teaching our students that. In right. uh, many of our universities, we're teaching students about the the, the dark side of American history. And, and look, we don't need to cover that up. Uh, sure. But it, the the teaching needs to be fair and balanced. We need yeah. to say this is what America once was. We have overcome many of those discriminatory the, the discriminatory issues in our past. And look at the great things that we've done. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're not teaching that, uh, and, and we're teaching in, instead many of our students to hate America as we exist today. Evil, wicked, and uh, you know, just bathe in, in racism and oppression the, and so forth. We never the wokeness, seen, the political yeah. correctness yeah. That, that, that we feel like we have to have in, in many of our grade schools, but in particular of our, of our universities. Again, it, it is is wokeness run amok, no and doubt. we must take a firm stand, and we must make sure that. Uh, and I hope, and one thing I believe that Republicans are going to look at doing is that we're not from a federal side that we're not going to be funding these programs, which are clearly anti-American in nature. Especially in our military. That's right. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. So uh, the debt ceiling uh, debacle, the uh, it, we knew this was coming, and I, I know that um, then-representative, soon-to-be Speaker McCarthy, was encouraging the, the Senate to not pass the omnibus bill which, of course, went down, the, I want to say, the Friday before Christmas is when it got, got signed ultimately into law, to, that let's just wait, get the House seated, and let's take up the, the spending measure that we need to fund, need to do to fund the government for the duration of the year. That didn't happen. But now we got this debt ceiling on our hands, and we've got Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen saying she's taking, quote, extraordinary measures to kind of extend it out and operate the government best we can without getting an extension and increase of the debt ceiling. We got McCarthy going over to visit with the president Wednesday, comes away, nothing definitive or specific. I did think he acted very deftly, Congressman, when he was asked by the media what happened, and they kept trying to get into the specifics, and he said, you know, I'm not going to negotiate the debt ceiling with the press here right after the meeting. This is setting up to be quite the debate, I believe. 
It, it is, and you know, and I agree. You know, Speaker uh, McCarthy's meeting uh, with the president was just the first of many, uh, and this is going to be something that we're going to be talking about. We're going to be debating for several months. You know, I think it's unclear when we actually hit the point to where we're unable to meet our financial obligations or, or a portion of our financial. May obligations. June is the projection. Yeah, May June, possibly July, yeah. and and so you know we've got time to continue to debate this, but it is important, I believe, and it should be important to Republicans and Democrats that we find a way to get spending under control, that we find a way to cut wasteful spending. And for anybody to say with the budget that we just passed, the $1.7 trillion budget, that there's not some waste in there, that there right. are not some programs that that, that that can be cut. I mean, to me, that that that's incredibly asinine, if you will. Uh, you know, I, I was was starting to do as we began doing research on this. You know, there was one particular program in there, thirty-six million dollars, uh, to study uh, the effect uh, that aging has on people's hair turning gray. <laughs> Well, you know that you know that 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 is something that that is just going to happen. You know, uh, uh, that is biology, if you will. Uh, there's there, there's no study that we can have, uh, and no study that the federal government should be funding on why people's hair turns gray. Unbelievable. Uh, if you don't want your hair to turn gray, uh, you know, uh, there there are plenty of products that you can buy anywhere to, uh, to remedy that. Uh, but but we've got to have this this discussion, and the, really the only two times we can have this discussion is, is when we come upon a debt ceiling or we come upon having appropriation bills that are required to be passed. Brings it to a head. Yeah. But Other it, than that, we it, don't even talk about that's it. That's right, yeah. But, you know, if if you wait until the appropriation bills, you're going to hear, particularly from the left, we can't shut the government down, how terrible this is, uh, and they're going to give you every reason as to why that's not the proper time to negotiate that. And the same thing with the debt ceiling. And so we as Republicans have to take advantage of this opportunity, and we've got to start putting physical restraints in place. And if we don't do it now, you know, we are continuing to burden this debt on our children and our children's children. They're also very skilled at pushing it out to the last minute, as they did here. we got to get out of here and go home for Christmas. you got to sign here. I mean, that, that literally was the strategy that was employed here. That, that's right. And, and uh, allowing really no free debate. The, the Senate passes the bill, sends it over to us. They mm-hmm. sign, he died, they're gone. Uh, and we're left to vote it up and down. And, of course, I'm proud to say that I did not support that measure right. because there was way too much spending in the $1.7 trillion spending bill. And we appreciate you holding the line on that. And so we look forward to the continued debate uh, in the House. At least we got the House now and we can stop all the craziness. At a minimum, we can do that. Uh, congratulations again on uh, your committee chair. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I think you're perfect for that position. Always good to see you, my friend. You too. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Congressman Michael Guest has been our guest here on Middays. We're coming right back. Stay with us. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
that's an appropriate song for today, isn't it? <laughs> what about this balloon up there hovering around these United States? Well, if you believe the Chinese, which you shouldn't, it's a weather balloon. It's flown off course. It's <laughs> civilian related. It has nothing to do with the Chinese military or government. Do we still use weather balloons? I thought we got Oh, yeah. We do? I didn't think we needed that anymore. Because they're, the satellites they're cheaper than having to send up a satellite for... I mean, you can literally fill up a weather balloon for the price of the material in the weather balloon, put a little transponder on it, and get a ton of data without having to spend millions of dollars on designing a satellite and then another big heaping of money to get it up into space. And then operate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's... I, I think uh, the capital, the upfront capital on something like that's got to be a billion or more for a satellite. Uh, I remember one that fell back to Earth when I was like in the sixth grade or something. There's big news here in the central Mississippi area, and it uh, ended up in the Clinton area, west of here, uh, west of our point. But this thing is, my understanding is, is it like three school buses in size, equivalent to that? Yeah, it's a big old boy. The weather balloons that I recall back then weren't that big. I don't know how big they are now. Of course, that's back in the 60s. I don't know. But uh, this thing, so this thing's hovering around, was over Montana. There was a point Expected at which... to make its way over Missouri by Sunday. Yeah. I'm sure it's not spying or collecting information. No. The Chinese did just here in the last couple of hours acknowledge, yeah, it's ours. Apparently, there was a discussion with Joe uh, about shooting it down. And he elected not to. There's concern about the, the debris possibly harming people or property as, uh, as the explosion of the... Uh, the, the balloon would cause it to fall to the earth, of course, shooting down, and they're worried about the uh, yeah the parts there coming down and hurting somebody. Hmm. What's the latest on that? I don't see any, any update. Uh, there hadn't really been an update besides people in the flight path of the balloon trying to get pictures of it, and there have been a few clearer photos that have come out since it was first announced and found in the Montana skies. But, yeah. Gotcha. After the decision not to shoot it down, it's pretty much just going to float. I guess so. Collecting data. I had a weather balloon crash on my property in Gulfport, says Jeff in Gulfport. How big was it, Jeff? Was I close in what I recall? I, I recall it being... Maybe 20, 30 feet diameter, something I would like say that. that's about the, the bigger weather balloons. Because if you think back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they were using weather balloons to go way up. That's right. Like, to the edges of space to test out things for NASA. But your everyday average meteor, meteorological weather balloon, on the desk in front of you there, that kind of semicircle you got in front of you, it'd be about that in diameter. Okay, and of course, the higher up they go, the the more they expand because of the pressure, and then eventually they pop. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's what they're worried about. So what they say? Worried about the debris falling to Earth over inhabited areas and causing problems. Hmm. 
It's not like somebody smart could do the math and figure out, okay, well, if it's over this field or this group of fields, we could take it out in this window, this time frame. Yeah. Send Maverick up with an F-18 <laughs> with a hook on it, says David on the 228. That's interesting. Somebody asked a question. I'm looking for it now. I think it scrolled on by. It was, oh, here we go. Bob in Itawamba wanted to know, can Congress not pass a bill to require students to begin repaying their student loans? Would that not help with the deficit? Uh, it actually would not, Bob. That would be a balance sheet transaction as opposed to an income statement transaction. Don't want to get too accounting wonky on you there, but that's just um, folks that understand basic accounting. That's just a debit to cash and a credit to the liability. The deficit, of course, is the difference between what we take in and what we spend. The debt um, is, is actually, it's actually a receivable on the federal government's balance sheet. So it's student loans receivable not a liability. So when they pay it back, it just means we have more cash and less of a receivable as opposed to debt. It's debt to the student loan debt holder. I really do encourage folks to uh, log on to our website, supertalk.fm, and check out the article that I wrote uh, concerning the looming debt ceiling. The congressman told me he actually shared it with some of his colleagues. I, I really am honored. I appreciate that. It's a good sort of primer on Understanding deficit debt and uh, what we're where we're likely to go in this uh, this debate on the hill. Coming back with Scott Waller, the president of the Mississippi Economic Council. And now, and now. the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen. To. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back, hour two of midday, Super Talk Mississippi live from the Element Well Studios on this Friday, y'all. And joining us now is Scott Waller, President and CEO of the Mississippi Economic Council. Scott, always good to see you, sir. It's great to see you. Thank you for letting me come on today. So I know that uh, the MEC has been uh, working with uh, the legislature and others on this legislation that would affect how... Uh, pharmaceuticals are are bought and sold uh, in the state, and more specifically, the role of the pharmacy benefit managers, known by the acronym PBM. Right. And they sit in what, honestly, is a very complex, convoluted <laughs> ecosystem. Very much so. I've spent some time, uh, long before this, uh, this uh, meeting with you today, trying to wrap my head around that, and, and you... I have a hard time finding where uh, everybody's analysis of it is in agreement. That's the first thing, which tells me. Would you agree with that? That's a good point. 
and you start looking at visual depictions of the workflow, something I have a little experience with yeah. in my business career, and there's a lot of arrows pointing all over the place between the parties. And the poor consumers are out there just at the mercy of all this. In a lot of ways it is. And you, you understand this, as you said, probably in your, your previous life, you, you had to deal with making sure you had a good benefit program for sure. your employees. Whether, And again, I don't know if you were self-insured or if you were, were using a group Third policy. Third party group policy. But at the end of the day, what we're, what we're talking about is it's all about trying to negotiate the best possible price for for prescription drugs for Mississippians who have insurance and and the employees of of the members that we represent. And and this legislation that was introduced has a couple of really what I would call red flags in it that that creates problems for us in terms of determining where they're claiming there's going to be cost savings that they say there's going to be. But more importantly, if it truly is cost savings, why has the legislature chosen to not include the state health plan, which covers them, by the way? in this, if there truly are cost savings, which we have done a lot of research, Gerard. We have talked to businesses of all sizes across the state. We've talked to providers in terms of health care providers and others, um, insurance providers and others, and there has been numerous analysis looking at this bill. Uh, the companies that, that are part of MEC that have gone and taken the time to look into this, they didn't just give me a quick answer on, hey, this is going to cost this much based on one thing in the bill. They looked at every mm. aspect of it, and I've yet to have a single one come back and say, oh, we can save money doing this. Uh, everybody's come back and said, this is going to cost me X. And depending on the size of the company, it could be in anywhere from a, you know, a hundred thousand up to over a million or even multiple millions of dollars of additional cost in in health in healthcare because of prescription prices going up of what this what this bill requires and what it what it does it requires two things it requires that you uh, there will be an eleven dollar and twenty nine cent dispensing fee put on all prescriptions when they're filled or refilled, and then the pricing model is something called NADAC, and that's where they say they're going to get their savings. Well, we've done a lot of re- research on that too, and there's an actuary out there that looks at m- the medical stuff in particular called Milliman, and Milliman says, "Look, yeah, there's going to be some drugs that will be that will cost less under NADAC." But the drug mix use that's there is what makes that determination. And they say NADAC is flawed because it has a very small sample size of pharmacists that actually report in what the drug costs are. And then secondly, not all drugs are reported. So if that's the case, if there's a drug that's not reported, it will go to the system that's currently in place and no adjustments being made for that that huge dispensing fee. Today, dispensing, dispensing fees, as I understand it, range anywhere from, you know, 50 cents to a couple of dollars. This would raise it to $11.29 per prescription. And that's a very big jump. And then secondly, there's no real evidence that we've been able to find that, that NADAC would would make up that big difference in that. And, and quite frankly, there's a lot of drugs that aren't. Well, those would be charge the prices they're charging today, or possibly even higher, and there's no adjustment for the dispensing fee. So we just think there's a lot of things in this that, that aren't good, uh, it's, and ultimately, and this is what it boils down to, it's going to come back to hardworking Mississippians will. that will pay the bill. Yeah. So I, I guess I wonder, uh, just thinking about you discussing the dispensing fee, Scott, why is a state involved in that? Well, you know, 
the and and that's what I didn't mention in all of this. The way this process works is there there's there's several elements involved. The the companies, particularly those that are self-insured or the the insurers that provide group or in, individual policies, they negotiate prices on all aspects of healthcare. Right. As part of what they do in getting their contract for healthcare, whether they're self-insured or whether they're using a group or even if if somebody is on their own and needs to buy insurance they they get these options those prices are negotiated by people that really understand it a whole lot better than I ever will or will ever claim to but what I do know is they don't necessarily want the prices to be high because in a lot of cases companies pay the premiums for their employees right. so they're going to look for the best deal possible uh, and then they also want to make sure that employees that want to put their families on there that then the employee has to pay that part of it they're paying as little as possible yeah. so under this legislation, all of those things I just talked about that's called negotiating a contract is taken away from the company. This is really overreach by the government to say a business no longer has the ability to negotiate its own private contract on what its benefits will look like for its employees. And just for background, for purposes of our audience, Scott, and, and please step in if I describe this incorrectly, but the pharmacy benefit manager, the PBMs, they actually work and sit between the pharmaceutical makers and the insurance companies. It, the, because pharmaceuticals and drugs in general are so complex mm-hmm. that it's difficult for the traditional health insurer to, to tackle that piece. And so the PBMs work, and, and what they really do is they help create what they call formularies, which are just a schedule of drugs that are covered uh, in various categories that have to meet certain minimum requirements in order to, to offer insurance. But they work directly with the pharmaceutical companies, and, and, and they work to bring the price down, and they get compensated mm-hmm. for that in the form of rebates. Right. But all that, and I think what, what's being argued is that we don't know anything about those rebates, but I thought by law that had to be transmitted, it had to be disclosed. It, it is, and, and, and that was brought up. They had a hearing about a week ago at the Capitol that, that talked about a lot of this, and one of the things that was said by the people that are pushing this legislation they made the statement that um, I'm sorry. They made the statement that the, the, that well, biz, businesses don't know what their what rebates the PBMs are getting, and the two business uh, people that were there who mm-hmm. who manage benefits for very large companies in this state, both of them stood up and said that's not true. We get a report every month on what our rebates are. And all of that rebate is all part of the negotiation. So it's in the contract that says, okay, we've got to tell you what we're getting and how the savings are then passed on to you as the business. So I think there's a lot of things being said about this that that really aren't coming to light in a way that, that help people understand it. But I'll come back to what I said a minute ago. If this really if there really is cost savings by making these changes that that's being proposed in this legislation if there really is cost savings by taking a business's right to negotiate their own private contract which again i I view that as government overreach and their savings in doing this why is the state medical plan the one hundred ninety thousand member state medical plan not included why is the legislature saying okay we're going to pass on the savings here but we're not going to give it to our own state employees or ourselves the truth of the matter is, we have heard from business after business after business. We have talked to insurance providers 
there is no model that shows that this has a long-term effect of saving money. And that's the reason the state plan is not in there. Hmm. Because if you put the state plan under the same guys that all of our businesses are looking at, you're talking about tens of millions of dollars more for the state plan. I mean, I, I've I've heard upwards of $30 million more for the state plan under this. And this legislation specifically excludes it. Or if they didn't have that provision to specific to, to exclude them, hmm. they would be part of it. So I think there's a there, there's a couple of things there that make you go, hmm, is this really what they say it is? We got a break right here. When we come back, uh, if, if you're available, can you stay around? Yes, I can. We'll dig into this a little bit more. We've got Scott Waller, President and CEO of the Mississippi Economic Council, in the Element Well Studios. That keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. There she stood in the street, smiling from her head to her feet. I said, What is this now, baby? Maybe she's indeed out of kiss. I tell her, hey, hey, what's your name, baby? Maybe we can see things the same. Now don't you hey, hey. Oh, hesitate. Back with you in the Element Well Studios. It's midday, Super Talk Mississippi. Our guest is Scott Waller, president and CEO of the Mississippi Economic Council. Scott, so I, I know this has been a... Um, Taking a lot of your cycles, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a very important matter, there's no doubt. And and it's something that, gosh, affects virtually every member, if not every member, it, that you guys have, and every business in this state that it, offers insurance, which does. is most of them. And you know, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of attention put on self funded plans. Right. But, but small businesses they they, do th- it. they don't do that. They they depend on the ability to go out and and purchase insurance and that's kind of where that that process works so looking at what the impact of this is on group plans whether they're large group small group plans it's astronomical and it's it's going to raise it we we've seen numbers from from different uh, insurance companies that provide different types of services and we're getting the same type of information back you're looking at probably this meaning at a minimum, probably 15% increase in, in premiums alone. And that doesn't take into account the, the extra cost of, of co-pays. You know, inflation is always a part of everything that we do. And then, then just rising drug costs, as you, you mentioned before. You know, the, the process of understanding how drugs are priced is a very complicated process. Mm. And, and as generics come on the model, that, onto, the, you know, onto the scene, that changes things. So all of those things are part of that process as, as these companies try to determine, okay, if, if we go in and, and negotiate what our drug pricing is going to be, 
then this is how we'll be able to set up our premium. So, but the businesses that do have self-insured plans, they're they're very concerned about this. And even even one that I've talked with that that uses primarily the NADAC model that is proposed here, they would see significant increases because they're already there and they're they're not excited about this eleven dollar and twenty nine cent dispensing fee because that's there's no way to take that to make that up yeah. from what they're doing right now. So I think there's a lot of things that are that are out there with this. While as you said, it's very complicated and, and, and somewhat um, you know hard to understand at times, which is why, as you know, in my former profession when I was in journalism, I, I tried to just get to the facts and ask as many questions as I could to help me understand it. And there are a lot of people that understand this a whole lot better than me. They can look at the numbers and really tell us what it's going to be that have, have put a lot of time and effort in doing that. And I want to just stress the fact that the companies that have provided information to us, they didn't just do a, like, on the back of a napkin kind of formula. They really looked into what this was going to do based on the plan they currently have and the contracts they currently have. So I think the, the, the information they're giving us, they're very, very concerned. They, they see a lot of... Uh, a lot of possible cost increase, but what the biggest concern is, if a company is working hard to provide really good benefit plans, and that cost is going to go up, that is going to be passed down to their employees. So again, it's the hardworking Mississippians that ultimately will shoulder the cost of this, and we just we're concerned about it because we want to make sure we have a a, a good business climate. Uh, a place where there's a the cost of doing business is reasonable, and this is a concern to us. Yeah, you seeing anything similar to this in any other state, Scott? There's been one other state. Uh, I I actually uh, put an op-ed column out yesterday, that, and I mentioned this in it. There's one other state that has has put a plan very similar to this in place, and they also took out the the state health plan when they did it there, hmm. and it took them over a year because of, of issues of getting it implemented, but it started January 1. So we don't have any real data, but on January 30th, which was Monday of this week, my counterpart in West Virginia at the West Virginia Chamber sent out a notice to his members saying, hey, we please take this survey on the impact of this because we have gotten some of our members have said they are already seeing significant increases in pharmacy prices. So that's just in a 30-day time frame that they're they're hearing from their members saying, this is costing me more money. Hmm. And so while we don't have any what I would call long-term reliable data at this point, right off the top, we're hearing that this is not working well for businesses in that state. This just seems... We really, whether it's um, re- rise, uh, raises cost or or reduces cost, it seems like it's inappropriate role of government. I mean, just stop that, it right there. That, that is that is really the 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 very first line of of what I uh, sent out yesterday. It says this, it, and it's a, an egregious uh, overreach of government, and that's exactly what this is. It, it is it is government getting in the way of a company being able to negotiate. A private contract, yeah. and, and I think that's that's that flies against all principles that we stand for. I believe, in terms of allowing a, a company to to be successful, you've got to let them conduct their business in the best way they see. 
in conducting their business. You know, Scott, no no disrespect whatsoever to our lawmakers, but this is a complicated matter that really requires some, some fairly deep analysis and, and understanding, I would think, just to even cast a vote. This is a hard deal. It's a hard deal, and I think part of what is part of what has happened is, and, and I will say this, and again, I don't mean any disrespect to our, our, our local pharmacists. We need them. They're a very sure. important part of our economy. We, we, we want them to be successful. That That's a fact. However, I think as this bill was being written and introduced, there was a really big push to get a lot of senators to sign on to this legislation, and 30-plus did. As they have learned more and more about this, every day more and more taking their names off this legislation, having mm-hmm. their name removed, because they understand this isn't really what they thought it was. And, and and that's part of, as you say, the ability to understand it sometimes is, is – it takes time. And that's part of our, our process. This bill was introduced right off the bat. It was finally dropped on the 17th of January. So, I mean, you know, less than a half a month ago. And we've been spending all that time really looking at what this really does. And, and that's why we're very concerned. It, it passed out of – it passed out of the, uh, the Senate um, – Public Health and Welfare Committee. It's on the Senate calendar right now. Hopefully they'll realize as they look at this, we encourage them, please don't just take a a vote based on emotion. Take a vote based on really what this bill does. And and I think they'll see if they really dig into it, there are still some issues here that do not we do not need to have this legislation continue past next Thursday. Yeah. We we need to go ahead, put it to bed, figure out, you know, in the off season, are there other options and then go from there. Yeah. Well, uh we sh- we shall see has there been any discussion of when this might uh, be put up for a vote. I there has not been. I, I was I was as I was coming in earlier, I was listening to the Senate. They've since adjourned since we've gone on the air. Um, so it, it will be one day next week, but the deadline is is next Thursday yeah. for all bills to come off the calendar. So we'll we'll see what happens over the next few days and and continue to work and, and hopefully make people aware of all, all of the problems here. And and as you said, it's it's taken up a lot of bandwidth for me. And there's a lot of other great things happening. There's some some really good workforce uh, legislation out there that's going to continue. You know that are that's proposed to continue our career coaches, which I think is a big part of what we've got to do. There's some some legislation that, that's looking into, and, and this, again, these are things that, that we don't have the, all the answers to yet. Uh, there's a procedural motion, a uh, procedural thing called uh, a reverse repealer that, that keeps a piece of legislation alive. So uh, it it's actually is in the, the pharmacy bill, but in our case, we just believe that bill just needs to go on and, and go away right mm-hmm. now, and let's, let's don't even continue to talk about that piece of legislation but we've got some legislation looking at um how we could possibly restructure our financial aid system to get more non-traditional and uh part-time students to take part particularly for workforce training type things so there's there's some good things that are going to happen in this legislative session we just think this one would be a bad one yeah and uh i know uh given that you have really been focused on this which it, it certainly appears you should because this is so sweeping uh, I've been talking a lot about the vehicle legislation, mm-hmm. which would essentially require that all new electric vehicles sold in the state of Mississippi would uh, have to be done so by an independently owned dealer in the state. And I hope you'll take a little time to 
to take a look at that. I think it's bad legislation. I can tell you it's 100% in opposition of on my tax line and in talking mm-hmm. to the general public out there. I think the only people that uh, have some interest in this are those who own the dealerships in the mm-hmm. state and some people in the capital. So, well, yeah, we will be taking a look at that and several other things as we go forward. And, and again, we we appreciate the form you provide for us, Gerard. Appreciate it, it, Scott. It, it makes a difference. Yes, sir. Thank you, and thank you for coming on. And we'll be uh, tracking this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it some more. All right. Thanks a lot, Scott Waller, President and CEO of the Mississippi Economic Council, has been our guest. We're coming right back. with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Mississippi, little Baba O'Reilly by the Who. We are back with you in the Element Well Studios. Let's see, today on In a Mississippi with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with chefs David Cruz and Stuart Robinson of the Delta Supper Club. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by visitmississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Super Talk Mississippi stations, supertalk.fm, and available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So looking forward to that. Oh gosh, so much going on here. We gotta we gotta take a second to share a little woke news. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the folks down there at Florida State University are pretty woke. Despite the fact that Governor Ron DeSantis has called for the exclusion of woke wokeness and woke training and woke principles. If there are such a thing, how about the woke ideology? I think that makes more sense. Embedded in the education systems of the public schools in Florida, including public university. But Florida State is proud to have reported to the governor that they have 23, that's a two and a three, 23 separate diversity, equity, and inclusion training programs and initiatives. Twenty-three! Oh, gosh. But it's now being revealed from folks on the inside that have leaked some information about Florida State. 
Some of this information has been obtained through various requests using the Sunshine Law. And it's just, as we should expect, a sprawling bureaucracy, which is totally dedicated to promoting left-wing ideology and racial narratives, certificates, committees, statements, grants, groups, clubs, reports, etc. Just a whole kit and caboodle. One of those programs, social justice ally training. <laughs> Might explain why their tuition rose 10% in the last year. Ah, we got to pay for all these people. Oh, yeah. This, this bureaucracy, which is a bunch of people working in these various programs. So this particular social justice ally training was hosted by Student Equity and Inclusion Director Sierra Turner in the Center for Leadership and Social Change. It, of course, <laughs> provides a basic recapitulation of critical race theory, white patriarchal, patriarchal, pardon me, Western societies have created a cycle of socialization. They come out with new terminology every day. It's got its whole parlance, doesn't it? That's resulted in, of course, racism, classism, religious oppression, sexism, heterosexism, gender oppression, ableism, ageism, and adultism, and xenophobia, the obligatory xenophobia. The trainers, of course, teach that in the United States, whites, in quotes, are the racial group responsible for the, quote, systematic subordination of members of targeted racial groups who have already little power. They're guilty of, of course, quote, cultural racism or the creation and maintenance of social structures that overtly and covertly attribute normality to white people and whiteness. <laughs> They can make this awfully wordy, can't they? I think it's because they really don't... It's a whole bunch of <laughs> college-level words to basically say, wah, 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 life's not fair, wah. <laughs> You should know also, Rhino, that Christians, too, represent an oppressor class. Because, of course, they do. <laughs> they've created... Christian hegemony, which normalizes Christian values, you know, uh, to love one another, <laughs> treat everybody with the dignity and respect they deserve, follow the principles that Jesus Christ taught. Oh, the horror! normalizes Christian values as intrinsic to an explicitly American identity and have instituted a regime of religious oppression and the systematic subordination of minority religions. Really? So because you're a practicing Christian, somehow you're suppressing non-Christian religions? Help me out with that. I don't know that I've ever seen that. They say in the training, of course, that Christians hold a close-minded close hatred, fear, and prejudice towards Islam and Muslims. No, just the ones that want to kill people and do it for sport.
support. Honestly, they do it in the name of their religion, the radical members of it do. And the big problem there I see is that the truly good folks that are practicing Muslims and are aligned with the, the, the Islamic religions, they won't denounce the bad people who basically hijacked the doctrine for their own personal gain, and they can only attain whatever that gain is by killing other people. The jihad, right? You just got to wipe them off the earth. And so the training goes on to, of course, divide participants into dominant groups and subordinate groups. The dominant groups would include whites, men, Christians, heterosexuals. That's where they got that cis-heteropatriarchal word from. <laughs> but, of course, they could seek redemption through identity development. Well, you'll, of course. You'll sit in the corner and admit your privilege and show that you're interested in real change. You will fall in line. You will wear the ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> you've got oh wait you got to hear this <laughs> you've got to show that you will consciously unearn privilege <laughs> and destroy the system my pledge to destroy the system this is in Florida State you think it ain't happening everywhere in this country I'm telling you it is it is. No, the perpetually offended are everywhere. <laughs> I mean, just look at the drama surrounding... There's a guy on YouTube. He, his name is Mr. Beast. <laughs> he does all kinds of crazy stuff. Like when the, the Netflix show, the always oh, the name of the game show that where they killed people in the game, but it, it, was a, it wasn't real. It was a show from Korea. I forget the name of it. But he, he redid that with CGI and had a whole bunch of influencers and stuff come and take part. Well, his most recent thing is... He used his own money that he's raised and earned to help cure blindness for a thousand people around the world, especially in countries where they have a hard time getting health care. <laughs> but no, 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 that's ableist. Oh, that's ableist. Another huge problem with Mr. Beast video seems to regard disability as something that needs to be solved. Oh, God. <laughs> Can't be happy that the dude spent his own money to help cure a thousand people of blindness. No, you gotta get woke. You gotta be offended. Does it follow the narrative? So the classics department at Florida State <laughs> has released a statement in support of Black Lives Matter. The business school has pledged to create an award for DEI heroes. And the art history There's department... There's nothing heroic about... <laughs> wincing and moaning about stuff that only exists in your own imagination. <laughs> the Art History Department has adopted a land acknowledgement that portrays white Europeans as illegal settlers. And the Sociology Department, not to be outdone, of course, but their colleagues in the other departments, has created an entire course, Critical Race Theory, that presents Racialism is the gospel truth and assigns readings that traffic in overt racial hostility, including whiteness as pathological narcissism. 
Somebody on the ceasefire text line wants to know if we're offended by diversity. No, we're just offended by stupidity. And I'm going to answer that question when we come back. Stay with us. Super Talk Mississippi. Well, studios, Super Talk Mississippi. So the, the person on the ceasefire text line says, Are y'all offended by diversity? The perpetually offended are also in the Element Wealth studio. No. Why is it all the loons come out on Friday? <laughs> I don't know. We're this close to the weekend, and you got some loony liberal on the ceasefire text line trying to start crap. <laughs> you know, first the question, offended by diversity, I, I guess for me personally, and I've been on the earth a lot longer than Rhino has, uh, I would invite you to take a look at my business. I mean, that's, that's my, my resume, my history. That's my response to that. 33 years. Take a look at it. Take a look at the composition of my, my staff, my team. Ask them. Ask them. And I'm talking about those that would be in the minority category. That workforce. And, by the way, I didn't have $500,000 a year diversity, equity, and inclusion directors. Chief diversity, equity, inclusion officers. It's a a giant waste of time and energy. It's a shakedown. I didn't need that. If you if you've got to ins- think about it, if you've got to spend money and create such an organization within a department, an, an organizational unit within a larger organization, I would argue that that organization's got problems. It's likely not going to succeed. Just can't. It wasn't necessary. I know this may go against more traditional thought today. It's certainly among the left. We hired people based on their merit, their qualifications, their capabilities. And we also promoted and compensated them on the same basis. Imagine that. What I'm opposed to is a system that produces outcomes based on physical attributes rather than their qualitative characteristics. That's what I'm opposed to. And that's all this is trying to do. You know it. That's all these organizations, all these efforts, all this money is really trying to abandon our performance-based society. That's what it's all about in the name of 
equity. Doesn't matter how you performed. Doesn't matter what value you contribute to an organization or society. That's irrelevant. All that matters is, is what is your skin color? What's your gender? What's your ethnicity? We got to give you special help, regardless. Now we're seeing, by the way, some lawsuits. Just caught this uh, story yesterday where there are some suits going on, people being rejected for admission into college when they made better grades. And it was all on, than those who got admitted, and it was all on the basis of so-called equity. That's what they call level the playing fields. White students are suing Texas med schools that rejected them for minorities who had lower GPAs and MCATs. You know what their goal is, no more GPAs, no more MCATs, no more measurements. You probably also saw that there, and this is what I also oppose, by the way, to the listener, a number of medical schools in this country are no longer going to participate in the U.S. News and World Report stack rankings of medical schools. Say it's not really based on any meaningful metrics and data. And, of course, they also say, yeah, it's in order to achieve equity. One of those, by the way, is State University of New York, which operates a number of institutions in the state of New York. You know, I've talked about this before, Rhino. Here's another example. They have suspended the SAT and the ACT if you're applying for admission to any of their colleges. Just add that one to the list. Harvard already did it. California did it. You're going to see, I predict, sadly, within the next few years, based on the trajectory at this point, won't be any more standardized test as an admission requirement in the name of equity. Because, you see, certain ethnicities and races score better. So rather than trying to fix the problem, the core problem, which is where, where are we losing this other group, these other demographics, and let's, let's, let's help them perform better, we're just going to get rid of the test. And then we'll just handpick whoever we want, and then we'll feel good about it, right, and give awards out like Florida State for being a DEI hero. You're not helping anybody. You're making it worse. SUNY says, if you believe your scores are an accurate representation of your ability, you, we can't consider that. I kid you not. We're coming back with J.T. Mitchell, the news director around here. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply, to think deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Middays back with you, Super Talk Mississippi. We're once again in the Element Well Studios, 601-879-4395, the ceasefire tax line. Joining us now is JT Mitchell, the Super Talk Mississippi News Director. JT, 
quite the eventful week we've had here in the Magnolia State. Always is. You know, a lot, a lot of what happened this week was definitely not in my, not on my bingo card. Um, but before we dive into some of the politics that went down in Mississippi this week, I just want to talk real quick about something that happened in Gulfport last night. Um, so back in October, we had a 15-year-old, Jaheim McMillan, who was shot outside of Family Dollar in Gulfport. You might remember that story. And so right now police are saying, well, he had a gun, was waving it at passing by drivers, then pulled it on us. Other people are saying that's not true, that's not the case. You know, there's proof that he put his hands up and complied. Hmm. Right now, no body cam footage has been released by GPD. Uh, no officers' names have been released. However, on a last night, or yesterday afternoon, five protesters, they wanted to speak to Mayor Billy Hughes about the situation. And so they stormed the city hall and were all arrested. Um, and one of the protesters, he's pretty well known, uh, especially in the D.C. area, but across the nation in terms of his activism. Um, he created an organization after the unfortunate George Floyd incident. Um, and he's been going hard for about three years now. And so they all have been arrested. Um, I don't know if they bonded out. I'm sure they have. But nevertheless, Gulfport PD is supposed to release, they've agreed to release the footage by the end of this month. Hmm. That's a weird deal. Who would have thought that? Gulfport, huh? Yeah. Um, well, this was a big story at the time in October, yeah. and I actually was in Gulfport a few weeks later, and it was honestly the hot topic. Um, a lot of people were saying, a lot of, you could hear a lot from both sides, right? As you do with a lot of things. Um and you never know, and without footage, without this body cam footage, nobody's going to know. Mm -hmm. And so I look forward to seeing the body cam footage, and I hope that justice one way or the other is served, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, let's go ahead and dive into the yeah. – that was just one of the bigger stories that hit last night this morning. Um, so let's start with health care bills. You saw what – Went down yesterday with the former chancellor, Dan Jones, and Governor Reeves, I, I did. assume. I did. A little fireworks there. Man, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, I said not on my bingo card, definitely not on my bingo card, that I, I, saw, I got a notification that the um, Democratic leaders in both the House and the Senate were holding a press conference. So I'm thinking, you know, just going to be probably a typical press conference. But then I saw Dan Jones was there, and he... Dropped, honestly, a bombshell. He said back in 2015 during a private conversation that I had with Governor Reeves, so that would have been when he was lieutenant governor, mm -hmm. he told me, well, Chancellor, I recognize that it would be good in terms of expanding Medicaid for Mississippians. However, I'm not going to do it because it's not in the best political interest for me. That's paraphrasing, but that's what Jones said. And it did not take long for Tate Reeves to respond. Governor Reeves went to Twitter very quickly um, and said, this is a lie. I haven't talked to this guy since well before he left Ole Miss. Um, and why is he holding this quote-unquote juicy scoop for eight years and now dropping it? Yeah. I mean, why now? It was an odd situation. Sure. But it does come on the heels of 17 Medicaid expansion bills being killed by the Republican-led legislature. Yeah. And right now, with the state of hospitals and the health care crisis in Mississippi, tensions are at an all-time high, right? You have 38 hospitals in danger of closing, and we do have 
the Democratic Party saying, we have this plan, and it revolves around Medicaid expansion. The Republican Party is saying, well, we don't have to do Medicaid expansion to fix our hospitals. And Democrats are saying, well, we don't believe you. And it's just a whole, you know, a, a big dispute. And bombshells, I'm not surprised they're happening, I guess. But something's got to happen right for the hospitals. So all those Medicaid bills are dead. But like they say, nothing's dead, dead. But I assume it will be dead, dead, right? Uh, what about along those lines, the postpartum issue, postpartum yeah. Medicaid? And so for those that aren't familiar with that, right now, Mississippi, even though lawmakers for the majority are saying we don't want Medicaid expansion, they are looking into postpartum Medicaid extension. Right. Which would expand or extend postpartum benefits from uh, right now it's at 60 days, mm-hmm. and it would go to 12 months. And that's pretty aligned with what a lot of places do. I mean, if you really look at the numbers and compare the two, Mississippi is one of 11 states that does not have Medicaid expansion right. and one of two states that does not have either Medicaid expansion or postpartum Medicaid extension. That's right. And Wyoming's currently entertaining the matter. And so my prediction is, by, if we don't pass this, we'll be the last state without either. That's right. So there, there are only two that uh, don't. Is that right? Two that don't have either, either or. That's Medicaid expansion or postpartum, or postpartum Medicaid extension. Us in Wyoming. Yeah. And Wyoming currently looks to be leaning towards implementing postpartum, uh, I think postpartum Medicaid extension. Okay. They could be doing the full thing. I don't remember. Um, but that's one of uh, one bill that stayed alive in terms of the ongoing health care crisis. And then I believe everything that Lieutenant Governor Hoseman put out in his Republican plan is still alive. And that would be providing $80 million in lifeline money, creating a bunch of programs that would help community colleges build out their nursing programs, um, help nurses pay for school, pretty much everything outside of Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. So that's where we're at right now. But the bottom line is that if an answer is not found, 38 hospitals will close. Well, I don't know that that is quite the case, JT, but 38 hospitals are certainly struggling financially. Uh, what, when or whether or not uh, ultimate closing is is imminent, I think, remains to be seen. But there, I think there's no question yeah. that financially they're, they're hurting what the state can do uh, is, uh, is another matter, whether or not Medicaid expansion is uh, an exclusive resolution to that financial problem. Uh, I think there's just been a, a lack of comprehensive, meaningful discussion on that, on both sides' part, honestly. Absolutely. I should rephrase. The bottom line is that 38 hospitals, if no answer is found, are in danger of closing. They're, they're certainly and on, that's on, from a, the Department on a path. Of Health. They're on, on the, a path to close. Right. Yeah. And what I mean, it doesn't seem like there's much meaningful conversation between both parties about anything. I mean, they're they're not discussing things. Every time I watch the floor, um, it seems like a lot of stuff is decided maybe preemptively. We watched it with the EV bill. It was kind of like push it in, push it out. Mm-hmm. It's it's become a political football, quite quite the political football, honestly. So, and of course, they don't want to be in the chambers all day long. I get that. Yeah. But I do enjoy the bills that come up where there's conversation from both sides. Yeah. Um, Let's keep going down the list of some yep. bills that are still alive. So health care is obviously on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Um, and speaking of that, I think it w- he may – was it was Speaker Philip Gunn on your program earlier this week? He was. Yeah, he said that the most transformative health care bill is this transgender health care access bill. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing Republicans are going for, which would 
um, ban gender confirming care for minors. Going down the list, um, a couple bills are still alive that would allow a teachers to carry guns to school. Yep. Um, they'd have to have the appropriate appropriate license. They would have to go through training courses, and they would only be allowed to use guns in situations that would cause death or bodily harm, such as an active shooter. Um, and Sean Tindell said yesterday that he's all in favor of it. He's head of DPS. Um, man, there's some big Jackson bills. Hmm. Some big Jackson bills. Very controversial. Very controversial. Um, and a lot of it is uh, Republican-led legislature has introduced you know a handful of bills that they believe are cases where power needs to be transferred from the city to more so the state because of Jackson's issues, mm-hmm. crime, water, etc. But one that happened yesterday was his 1% sales tax that Jackson voters passed in 2014 for roads, bridges, water, and sewer. Trey Lamar, Representative Trey Lamar, introduced a bill that said, well, let's just put all that 1% into water. And Jackson legislators said, well, that's, you know, going to take our roads and our bridges absolutely to hell, right? Mm. Um, And so that's going on. That's been controversial. Because if you do put all that in water, what money goes to roads and bridges? I don't know. Right. Um, Another one is this whole, or speaking of water, another one is to completely transfer the Jackson water system to a public entity that would be state-appointed. Another one is a CCID CCID, um, jurisdiction thing. There's a lot going on. Bunch of stuff going on. We didn't get to the vehicle bill. We didn't, but currently it did not get taken up yesterday or today and was on the calendar for both. Whether Mm. that's good or bad, who knows? Not sure. We'll see Monday. I've been talking to a bunch of folks about it, though. Maybe we'll get a little traction. We'll see Monday. Yep. Thank you, JT. All right. Appreciate it. Coming back in the Element Well Studios with, of course, Jim Morrison in the doors bumping us out in honor of JT. Appreciate it, Rhino. We're coming right back. I can see Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, 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 huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to So, I got to read the while I'm talking about this med school rankings thing. This is what's happening in this country. Follow along if you can. It's a little bit of a convoluted statement from one of the institutions, which is 
not surprising. Um, this is the former chief academic officer for one of the schools, AAMC. I'm looking for the name of the school. This is what he says. Some institutions allow the convenience of popular rankings to serve as a proxy for achievement, sometimes linking them to everything from public relations to fundraising campaigns to executive compensation, they wrote. Given the, cha- given the challenges faced in the areas of national health care, health professions, workforce development, and support for medical research, the Times demand that we abandon the pursuit of arbitrary measures. But that's not why they did it. it it's, um, and that, is a, that is a statement, by the way, uh, made from, coming from a group that's quite left-leaning on this matter. And it doesn't really come from those who have had more insightful, revealing conversations. Number of healthcare medical schools, or should say medical schools across the country, Harvard, Stanford, Columbia are among those that have totally abandoned the uh, the stack rankings. I don't know if folks are bothered about this sort of stuff as much as I am. I, I see this, like I said, as a, a march to mediocrity. The others, by the way, such as Columbia, said that the rankings, quote, perpetuate a narrow and elitist perspective of medical education. They don't measure a school's success in educating diverse Diverse students. What does that have to do with the practice of medicine? I don't know any clear-thinking person out there that really gives a rip about the physical attributes of the person that's going to be treating them. I don't think. And you could apply that same concept to a, a, a number of other interactions in life. People don't care. <clears throat> they grossly overplay that hand. Is the scapegoat for everything, just looking to be relevant. It, if, it, if it's in fact true that U.S. News & World Report focuses on some of those more subjective areas, such as incentive compensation and fundraising and things like that, but, but you know that's not the case. Not when you see all these schools dropping their standardized test and, and, and announcing that they do consider physical attributes and admissions. You know that's happening. You know people that have been through that. Everybody does. Yeah, I got rejected because I'm, I don't meet the profile. And these institutions are going out of their way. In the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion, That's where I have a problem with it, where that overshadows and is is given higher priority than qualifications, capability, prior track record, which is pretty important. You want to get to med school, I mean, when I was in college, that's the folks you never saw. 
They, you never saw them. They literally did, unlike a lot of us, went to college to just get in the books and make grades, produce a GPA. Because if you didn't, you didn't have a chance. And honestly, don't you want it that way? I think you do. But now that seems to be secondary in many situations. That's what I have a problem with to the folks that, the individual, I should say, that gave us a hard time. No, it's not, it's not diversity we have a problem with. It's, it's holding that in higher regard than merit. That's what we have a problem with. That's, but it doesn't fit the narrative. It's Elon Omar being kicked off of one committee in Congress, and the left goes crazy. It's all because she's a woman of color, a, a beautiful Muslim woman. I think that's the way AOC described her. What's well, in the beauty contest? Not about that. Not about what she looks like, how she dresses, how she speaks. None of that. Her historical background? No. It's about dumb stuff she said that makes it pretty clear she's anti-American. I don't see how anybody could conclude a, another opinion of her, another characterization of her, honestly. This is the kind of stuff that just it bugs me. And now we got white students in Texas having to sue said there were 450 lesser qualified minority students ranging as low as a GPA from 2.82 or an MCAT of 495 that were offered admission. 2.82? That'll get you into med school? You ever heard that before? No. I, I didn't know anything less than a three-handle with maybe a five after the point would get you in that club. Should be. This is, uh, gosh, Texas Tech University. I'm so sad to hear that. The Dell Medical School at University of Texas at Austin. McGovern Medical School at Texas Health Science Center at Houston. I've heard it's happening here, too, Rhino. Sad to say. Really, really am sad to say. We'll certainly see where that goes. On the financial front, you've been paying attention, had some... A run in the market yesterday on the NASDAQ. What a huge day that was in anticipation of earnings reports yesterday from Apple, Amazon, Google. Meta came out the day before. Meta actually came out surprised with some fairly positive guidance. It got some upgrades. It did okay in the quarter, but gave a pretty compelling story of how they're going to trim costs to, to uh, improve the performance of the business. Apple came out disappointed, but it, it did offer some fairly decent guidance. So before they announced yesterday, Apple had a big run, and then after the announcement had a 4% drop, it's come back quite a bit today. Something else that is being reported, more Americans are tapping into their 401k plans for emergencies. Yet Joe Biden said, based on the audio you played for us earlier, that he's actually made it better. Do you know where we were? Should you take any blame for inflation, Mr. President? 
by taking blame for inflation? No. Why not? Because it was already there when I got here, man. No, no, it wasn't, Jeff. Officially, I think 1.4%. Is that right? It's the figure that sticks in my head. Yep. I know it was under 2. And the Fed goal is 2. That's the so-called natural rate of inflation. And now we're, we, we passed through the 8% year-over-year phase in June. It has mellowed a bit. Still 6%. Wages up 4 and change. Still upside down. It's called real wages, the difference between inflation and your actual increased rate wages. Not keeping up. He doesn't acknowledge that. Just doesn't acknowledge any of that. So you're not going to solve a problem if you don't acknowledge it. And I don't think he's spoken yet, but maybe he has today. I hadn't, hadn't caught it. He's going to take victory laps over the jobs report today. And it is good that people are working. I, I don't discount that. But it had nothing to do with him. It's not his policies. He he wants to make people believe that it is. My policies that have assured that you have work, which is completely false. It's, it's an, you poured the water out when you told everybody to go home, and now we're just filling it back up. We, by the way, still have not gotten back to where we were pre-pandemic from a labor force perspective. Why doesn't that fact ever get pointed out? Gosh, I just hope people start paying attention to this sort of stuff. I know we get into the details. I do, in particular, on that. But it's important because we got a president that doesn't tell the truth about that stuff. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios on Middays. Mississippi. Gerard Gibbert. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. with gas now, slaying a family slow, stone. <laughs> Sloan. <laughs> On the ceasefire text line. Okay, I gotta stop for a second to get my tongue working right. Mike Close in, to the weekend. That's right. Mike in Gulfport, I recently was informed that different state government departments have different health insurance. Wouldn't it be beneficial to have all on one plan? I'm not aware of that, Mike. I think they all do participate in a, a single uh, plan. The state pays 100% of the active employee premium for the base coverage, and then employees select additional coverage options. I believe that is a self-funded plan that has a third-party administrator that's 
compensated for management. Or have a couple of plans and give each employee the ability to take the best option for them. You, you run into some issues with that, Mike, in my experience as an employer when you're, you're dealing with different, but in the case when you're dealing with different providers, but in the case of the state, just remember it's a self-funded plan, meaning that it's not insured by a third party, it's administered by a third party, self-funded. Whatever happened to Obamacare? That not available to those that can't afford any other coverage? A good question on the ceasefire text line. Talked about that quite a bit on the program because it's one of those, another one of those really complicated issues. But in essence, since 2012 or 14 is the time frame that the, the bill, the Affordable Care Act, signed into law, I believe, right on March tw- uh, 2010 is the date that comes to mind, Affordable Care Act. Is that right? Yeah, March 23rd, 2010. There you go. So it took a while, of course, to get the exchanges built out. Who could forget that? the amount of money spent by some of the states who said, we're going to build our own because that was optional. You can either essentially toss it over to the federal government, which is what Mississippi did, or you could attempt to at least build your own as a state. I think it was Oregon that spent like $650 million and never used it. Do you remember that? Never worked. Never worked. Never got it off the ground. It's a very complicated undertaking, and a lot of people may remember when it was first launched, there were all kinds of technical problems, and, and people came out of the woodwork that were opponents of the law, and I was one of the opponents, saying, I told you, I told you, I told you, and, you know, being in that world for a long time, I said, no, nah, this will get fixed. This is just, this, this is uh, fairly customary whenever you launch a big piece of software like that with a bunch of people using it at the same time. And so, of course, those issues have been resolved. There are no technical issues with it. But back to the sort of the crux of that, it, uh, it, it's a program that allows those who do not have affordable coverage, and that's defined in the law, offered by their employer to purchase coverage, obtain coverage in these marketplaces, which are just electronic shopping portals for insurance, if you will. You specify your your address and some other your state, your some other data points, and then it it helps you find plans. There are three levels of them, silver, bronze, gold, I believe, and and they, they have different coverage models and and out of pocket costs, constraints, and so forth. And they're offered by different private insurers. We have one here in Mississippi. I haven't been on it in a while. As I recall, there are two different private insurers, Blue Cross, not one of them, that sells their coverage on the Mississippi marketplace. Magnolia seems to be one that comes to mind. And so you're entitled to subsidies in the form of tax credits if you meet certain income eligibility requirements, and the subsidies are are computed as a percent of your, your – that your premiums would equal a percent of your household income. So it's not a, like a dollar amount subsidy that's provided 
uh, based on the coverage and some other information, it's it is a, just a cap on the premiums, and that's calculated as a percentage of your income. So your, if your income, based on the most recent law, is between 100 and 150 percent of the federal poverty level, your premiums are zero. This is something I've been calling attention to because it is a viable option to Medicaid expansion. doesn't get a lot of attention. And, and then it just progresses from there, 150 percent, 250 percent, I believe. I don't have the chart in front of me, but your premiums, I think, in that situation are capped at 2 percent. It goes 0, 2, 4, 6, all the way up to 8.5, phases out at 8.5. That's the way it works. You still are responsible for out-of-pocket costs. However, there are some subsidies available at certain income, I think below 250 percent of the FBL that are available, and your maximum out-of-pocket cost for coverage purchased in the exchange is $3,000, by the way, whereas when you have coverage through other sources, that's just based on the plan you select. There, There is law that does cap that, I think, at present. It's $9,200 a year for an individual, or $9,100, something that. That's the status of that. The perpetually offended, oh, we already got that. Uh, what is Mo saying here? Rhino Robot Chicken Celebrity Deathmatch. I think he was trying to name the show on Netflix, but uh, Thomas oh. helped out with that. It was called Squid Game. That okay. was the one that Mr. Beast recreated on his own with CGI involving influencers, and then now he's used his own money to help... Give sight to the thousand blind people, and the left and the liberals and the perpetually offended are <laughs> been out of shape over that because he's being ableist. Oh, geez. I would say, says Paula Meridian, quote, offended by this ignorance, not diversity. <laughs> Shaking my head. Oh, gosh. Concerning CRT, ask them to research the origin of CRT, pure Marxist. Propaganda, says William in Greenville. Yes, we've pointed that out, the roots of it, back to the 80s. It is rooted in what's called critical theory and evolved into critical race theory. It's an academic concept. It was yeah, That's where it was launched. It was hatched in academia. No surprise there. And it's really taken quite the ride from there and expanded into an entire grievance industry is really what it is, a shakedown. Uh, sounds like a good way to get rid of standardized tests in Mississippi since they teach to the test. And that's largely because that's how they're measured. The problem is the way we measure. And as long as we measure that way, that's the way they're going to teach. There's a lot that is tied to those measurements. And I'm okay, Tim and McGee says. What kind of nation will our grandchildren see, Gerard? Mighty scary. This is pitiful. And I'm okay with not passing Medicaid expansion. When we were born, our parents and my wife went back to work in four to six weeks because we had to. What has changed? Well, that really doesn't have anything to do with Medicaid expansion. I think you may be talking about uh, postpartum coverage. Um, I, I hear you, Tim, and uh, you know, we could talk for a long time ab- about that. And I remember those those days as well. That was pretty customary. And I know from an employer perspective, I've had this actually happen. You know, you're required when uh, an employee is uh, has a baby, and and you're required to grant them leave 
for that. I don't remember all the rules now, but I know you, you have to, and you have to hold their job open for when they return. And I remember dealing with situations where I had to do that, couldn't hire somebody else to replace them, had to redistribute their work and their workload to others, including me. Honestly, I had to pick up some of that slack. I accept that. I'm the employer. But, you know, you hold the job open. I had this happen twice. Come back for one day, quit. And you knew it. I knew it was going to happen. Couldn't do anything about it. That, that side of that story never gets discussed, though. And, you know, you could even ask them, you sure you're coming back, right? You're, you know, just to make sure. Well, of course, so they can get that pay for that period of time, and then all of a sudden they come back for one day, and they, they're out of there. So not unusual. HB 401, hopefully those that's the vehicle restriction build of one that would restrict how vehicles can be sold, electric vehicles in this state, to only independently owned dealers with brick-and-mortar operations located in the state. Ben from Madison says, I hope those senators are listening to you. It only sets the state back. I completely, totally agree. It sends the message, we are not open for business. We are closed. Don't come here. Totally agree. Appreciate that. We're coming right back. we got the final segment coming up. Before the weekend starts, folks, in the Element Well Studios. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. doesn't come knocking on the door to search my journey record jackets. <laughs> oh, gosh. I love that. It's awesome. Don't forget Morgan Wallen, the country music a superstar. Morgan Wallen is coming to Oxford and Super Top Mississippi is giving you an opportunity to win tickets. Just enter your name and contact info at one of our registration boxes located throughout the state. You can, for example, register to win tickets by going to Watts Brothers Tractor in Columbia, the Atrium Mini Mall in Meridian, Sage and Willow Boutique in Corinth, and many more. Go to supertalk.fm slash Morgan Wallen to find the full list of registration locations. Winners will get two sweet seat tickets to see Morgan Wallen perform at Vaught-Hemingway Stadium on Sunday, April 23rd. This Morgan Wallen ticket giveaway is brought to you by First South Farm Credit, King's Daughters Medical Center, Jumpstart Test Prep, and Toyota of Brookhaven. That ought to be something. Uh, the idiot has sold another $221 million barrels of the strategic reserves. Really? They announced something today that they're going to release more out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because it's it was 180 million total over six months is what I seem to recollect. 
$130 million a month for six months. Just a total Band-Aid rather than a permanent solution. I don't see anything. That's Jerry in Waynesboro. Thomas in Greenwood says, he, he of course, uh, you know, I, I disagree with him here somewhat, and that's fine. He, he focuses on admin costs to hospitals, and look, I'll be the first to admit that every organization should constantly be looking to improve efficiencies and eliminate duplicative spending and frivolous spending for non-productive purposes, including administrative costs in a hospital that are indirectly involved in the operation of the health care institution as opposed to directly. I totally agree with that. But that still doesn't fix the problem that people are getting care they ain't paying for. Because they can't. They just don't have the money. And the option is let them go without the care, and sometimes that results in death. That's not being, not, not attempting to engage in hyperbole. And, and normally that doesn't happen. They, they, medical providers won't let that happen. That would be completely dismissive of their Hippocratic oath and just morals in general. So that's not the issue. The issue is we have, regrettably, unfortunately, of the 50 states, we have the highest uninsured rate in the country. It's about 11%. And that's the highest. They're going to get care somewhere, and they don't have a way to pay for it. Most don't. That's the fundamental problem. I just wish all the smart people would get in a room and start with that fact and then start building from there. Because what we're getting right now are people that are saying, well, if we just expanded Medicaid, that'd fix everything. I don't believe that's true. And then we have other people that say, that say expanding Medicaid would just make it worse. I think somewhere in the middle, <laughs> honestly, is the truth. But we don't have any data. What lacks is actionable, intelligent, meaningful data. And so I encourage both sides to spend some time and produce some, some meaningful data that is, would serve as the primary input to the discussion of this complex problem. Thomas says they choose to spend money on things besides health care. Thomas, I don't know if you've ever had this, but I have. There's sometimes you have medical issues. They cost about eight salaries, eight years of salaries. The option is you die. It's expensive. That's the bottom line. So a lot of people think about health care being just simple, inexpensive, primary care. But if you got a problem, you got serious heart problem, cancer, certain levels, it's mind-boggling. I had an employee had melanoma, uh, sadly passed away under my employee. But there was some, some drugs that could extend his life for a couple of years, covered by our insurance. It was $46,000 a treatment. That was once a quarter. Forty-six grand had to go to MD Anderson. It's the only place you could get it. It did, in fact, extend his life. We're, we're pleased with that. And it's not that it cost us out of pocket for that, but you know how it works, Rhino. The next year they come around and say, okay, here are your premiums for your group this year. Boop. That's the problem. 
It's not that we had to come up with the money out of pocket or that we were spending money elsewhere. It's just we wanted to give this guy, extend his life. It's the right thing to do. And by the way, kept him on the payroll, just like they did here with JT. We're out of here for today. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.